Good evening, this is Rob McClure bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. And here are the headlines for this evening. (coughs) After I clear my throat, the jury in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse has continued to deliberate today and has now left for the day without a verdict. The Associated Press reports that the defense asked for a mistrial today, saying that they were provided an inferior copy of video evidence. There is also a request based on what the defense called, quote, improper questions. If a mistrial is granted, Rittenhouse would not be able to be tried again. Judge Bruce Schroeder has not yet ruled on either mistrial request, stating that he had not had time to read the motions. The jury will meet again tomorrow morning to continue deliberations. The city of Madison released a new policy on Monday requiring all city poll workers to give proof of vaccination against COVID-19, the Capital Times reports. Poll workers have until January 7th of next year to provide their proof of vaccination. City of Madison employees have already been required to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or provide regular proof of negative tests since August of this year. Election officials who do not submit proof of vaccination may be refused entry to the workplace and placed on no-pay status until they comply with the new policy. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says he has not given up on building a new Dane County jail. Parisi released today what he calls his hybrid option to the jail expansion and consolidation project, the Wisconsin State Journal is reporting. The hybrid option would cost less than previous versions, around $148 million, as opposed to $170 million for the other options. It would consolidate three current jail facilities. (coughs) Pardon me. The Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed today to hear a case regarding whether the state's Department of Natural Resources policy board chair can continue to hold his seat after his term expired months ago, according to the Associated Press. Fred Prane was appointed by Governor Scott Walker in 2015 and has not stepped down, despite current Governor Tony Evers appointing Sandra Nass to the seat in April. Prane uh, argues he does not need to leave the seat until Nass is confirmed by the Senate. That body has not made any motion to set a confirmation hearing. Attorney General Josh Call called on the Supreme Court to take the case after a Dane County Circuit Court judge dismissed the case. (coughs) The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a permanent memorial dedicated to the almost 9,000 people who have died from COVID-19 is being placed in the Wisconsin Historical Society. The memorial is a a collection of close to 9,000 ribbons reporting the COVID-19 casualties here in Wisconsin. The display was first erected outside the Trinity Trinity United Methodist Church and is being moved to the Historical Society to document the pandemic's impact on the states, on the state. The ribbons were collected this morning to begin their journey to the Historical Society. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi and Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway will meet with the Ice Age Trail Alliance tomorrow to announce the purchase of a new plot of land to expand the trail. The more than 1,000-mile long trail is designated a National Scenic Trail by the National Park Service and is contained completely within Wisconsin. The trail is not technically complete, however, with over 500 miles of unmarked connecting routes linking the designated trail segments. 
The new acquisition will create more trail connections and expand parking while preserving the glacial landscape. Governor Tony Evers was joined by the Wisconsin Department of Transportation to celebrate the completion of the 45-mile Interstate 90 and Interstate 90, Interstate 39 project through Dane and Rock County. The construction project began in 2015 to add two new lanes to the interstate, as well as to replace bridges and culverts. The project also added new park and ride lots in both Edgerton and Janesville, as well as three roundabouts at key interchanges. Construction on the whole interstate is not complete, however, with some interchanges in Beloit being finished early next month and some restoration work starting in spring of 2022. And now to today's COVID-19 numbers. Wisconsin's seven-day case average rose again to 2,963 confirmed cases, with 10.8% of tests coming back positive. There have been 15 recorded deaths in the last seven days related to the virus, bringing the state's total number of deaths to 8,812. Here in Dane County, the county remains at a high transmission rate with 1,098 confirmed cases in the last week. Those are the headlines, and now on to the rest of the day's top stories. The Dane County 2022 budget was officially signed into law today. WRORT reporter Nate Weggehaupt has the details. Earlier today, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi officially signed the 2022 budget, which he has titled Meeting the Challenge. The $754.9 million plan looks to address the impacts of COVID-19, as well as investing in mental health, combating climate change, public safety, and more. One major factor of the budget is $10 million in spending to help build a new crisis triage center. The center, which is still in its early stages of development, is designed to help keep those with mental illnesses out of the criminal justice system and to help link them directly with services to help them overcome barriers. Anna Moffat is the executive director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Dane County. It would be a location where somebody in crisis could go for observation, there would be mental health assessment, there would be a physical health assessment, um, and then it would be, you know, a, a welcoming place, right? There would be access to peer services. There would be a walk-in. Typically, there's a walk-in side, but then there would also be a place where first responders and law enforcement could do drop-offs. The Triage Center will work in tandem with programs like the Behavior Health Resource Center, which launched last year to help those in mental health care connect with resources and to help those seeking treatment for substance abuse. It would also work with another new addition to the budget, a new mobile mental health program by the Dane County Sheriff's Office. Parisi explains. What we're piloting in this budget is an innovative program we, we learned about from um, the Cook County Sheriff's Office. Um, they just started doing this. And it's a program through which we will pro um, we're, we're providing tablets, like iPad-type tablets, um, to every sheriff's deputy who is out on patrol. And at the other end of those tablets um, will be mental health crisis workers who are on call and available. Parisi says that these mental health professionals will be people in the community, not from a call center on the other side of the country, and will help those in rural areas receive the help they need instead of being incarcerated. The Crisis Triage Center would work similarly to an emergency room for mental health with a few key differences. 
There will be more privacy and a calmer atmosphere to help people find the help they need. Moffat says that there are similarities, but it's not a perfect analogy. So it is kind of like the ER, but it's different than the ER because the ER, when you go into the emergency room, it's a very chaotic place. There's, you know, there's people who are having physical health crises, right? There's not a lot of privacy. It's not welcoming. It's overwhelming. And so really the triage center will not be like the ER. It should be a much more welcoming place. Like I said, there would be peer support. There would be medical support for low-level medical, you know, physical health needs. And then also that observation and then crisis stabilization. The Crisis Triage Center would work with individuals regardless of their insurance status, which is important as the need for the center is high. Sean Kirkby is a reporter for Wisconsin Health News and has covered mental health services in Wisconsin. He says that while Wisconsin has always needed more mental health services, COVID has only created more need. With the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen increased stress. We've seen isolation. All of those can kind of make mental health services, mental health issues a little more difficult to handle. For instance, another thing that we've kind of seen related to mental health in general is the increase in the number of opioid overdoses and other sort of issues related to that in the state. So we're seeing an increase in demand and we're also seeing an increased amount of attention paid to providing funding and supporting these services. Also in the budget is funding to continue the Hotels for Housing program, which will help those experiencing homelessness find shelter in hotels around the city. The program began at the beginning of the pandemic, and the budget allows those staying in the hotel to find permanent housing and has already been used to find permanent housing for over 90 people. Parisi explains. As I mentioned, we help people find housing, but we also provide case management to help people um, succeed in their housing. And also there are resources that can go to pay rent forward for individuals so that they can get their foot on the ground, their feet on the ground, so that landlords, you know, have the security of knowing that that the rent will be paid um, just to give people a better chance. Parisi says he hopes to continue the program until at least June 2022. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wegehout. Time is now just going 6.17, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This weekend, hundreds of thousands of hunters will descend on the state's woods and fields to take part in Wisconsin's gun deer season. More than half a million people participated in last year's hunt, and outdoor activities such as hunting have proved to be a relatively safe way to spend time during the COVID-19 pandemic. But as reports that deer may be able to carry the virus on top of other diseases such as chronic wasting disease... There may be new precautions to take while in the woods this year. Our producer, Nate Wegehaupt, has more. 
I'm on the phone with Timothy Van Dielen, professor of forest and wildlife ecology here at UW-Madison. Van Dielen has studied the management of large mammals through population estimation and hunting, as well as CWD and its effects on deer. Uh, Dr. Van Dielen, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. So uh, just to uh, sort of start off here, I want to ask you about the deer population here in Wisconsin. What is the, how is the deer population doing? Well, generally good. I mean, it varies depending on where you are in Wisconsin, but we've always had a very robust deer population. Um, we have a little less productivity in the north where winters are harsher and a little better deer productivity in the south where we've got better nutrition. But we had a relatively mild winter last year, so that becomes less of a factor. So keeping, uh, you know, deer populations in check, is hunting the is hunting a legitimate viable option for helping to keep those deer population in check? And uh, what is the sort of the best way to keep those deer population in check as well? Well, the deer population responds to a number of things, depending again on where you are in Wisconsin. So in the south here, where we have relatively mild winters and high nutrition, you know, all the agricultural crops, then hunting certainly is helping to keep the deer population in check, so to speak. In the north, it's some combination of deer hunting and weather effects, um, which are, you know, episodic, some combination of nutrition because our deer populations are high enough where even in you know areas where we have some farm country we do see some winter starvation which is not completely unusual but it does tell us that the deer population is very close to its carrying capacity so with the uh earlier this year there was the wolf hunt uh that happened which are you know natural predators of deer has that deer hunt or has that wolf hunt i should say uh, had any effect on the deer populations that uh, we're able to measure so far? Short answer is no. We just we don't have enough information to measure that. And you know, if you back up, the way we track deer populations depends on harvest. So with the wolf hunt that we had in um, February, if there's an effect, it would be reflected in the harvest that we would see this fall. And we just haven't, you know. The opening day is this weekend, which is the the big event. So we haven't got data in hand, nor have we had the time to look at it. My hunch is that the wolf hunt is going to have kind of a minor effect, if anything, on, on the deer population. So now I want to sort of move away from that topic and talk about COVID for a moment. There was a report that was released last week by Pennsylvania State that found uh, COVID had infected at least 30% of deer that were tested in Iowa during 2020. Is that something that could threaten the deer population here in Wisconsin? I don't believe it's been found here in Wisconsin yet, but I'm not sure if it's been. Uh, do you know if it's been tested even? Well, to my knowledge, it hasn't been found, but it hasn't been tested for yet in Wisconsin. Um, the Iowa study was kind of remarkable for the high prevalence of uh, the COVID virus in the deer that they sampled. There's also an association with increasing prevalence in the sampled deer um, as the deer hunting season was ramping up in Iowa. To me, that looks like more of kind of a random association rather than cause and effect. But, you know, these are early data and we don't really know. But what was really remarkable about Iowa is that they detected COVID in very different parts of the state. 
all the way from the extreme east to the extreme west, and when they looked at the genomes of the viruses that they were recovering, it looked like there were multiple strains indicating multiple spillover events, probably from humans into deer. Now, whether they're seeing a population effect yet or not, I think it's too soon to say. What happens when we reach the carrying capacity or when that capacity is high for the deer? For the deer? Right. So you're asking me about mechanisms. The carrying capacity suggests that as the population grows, then intraspecific competition for something begins to ramp up between in intervals, or between rather between individuals, and then the mechanisms for how that causes population growth to begin to slow down differ from one species to the next. So in white-tailed deer, as you get increased density, you get intraspecific competition for food, and you know these are generalities. Um, if you go into the winter nutritionally stressed, then you are less able to fight off diseases. You might be in a weakened state and therefore more vulnerable to predators, particularly late in the season. Or you might just simply run out of gas before spring green up, in which case you would die of starvation. You also have at very high deer densities in the farm country a situation where fawning sites might be limited in which case the does are out there giving birth to fawns, and because of crowding, the fawns might not imprint on the right mother, or the mothers might be competing for the available forage in the spring and therefore might not have enough nutrition themselves to provision and wean the fawns, so that in addition to mortality sources that I talked about, you could also get, because of high density, a reduction in recruitment. In other words, a reduction in the number of fawns that survive to enter the deer population as, you know, eight-year-olds, That's or eight-year-olds, rather, eight-month-olds. That's when we typically think recruitment happens, when the, those fawns are old enough to be on their own. So sort of circling back over to uh, COVID, how do we have any idea how these deer got COVID in the first place? Was it passed from humans, or do we have any ideas? Well... Yeah, I'm not a COVID expert. So I just I read the preprint from Iowa and it looks like there's an association between the COVID genomes that you pick up in humans and the different COVID genomes that you pick up in deer, which suggests that there's a spillover event presumably from humans to deer. Now, the mechanisms for that are a little unclear because normally you know, if you think about all the advice you get about COVID hygiene, like be outside and be six feet apart and, you know, wear masks so that you're not breathing in aerosols from other individuals. Well, we rarely get within six feet of wild deer. And certainly when we do, it's a very happenstance sort of thing. And we don't spend much time being within six feet of live deer. So, I have a hard time thinking about how COVID transmits from human beings into wild deer. Now, plausible scenarios would include things like wildlife rehabilitators, where they might take in a deer, the deer gets infected, and then when it's rehabilitated, it's released. Or a deer farming scenario, where the, the farmer is having interactions with the farmed deer, the farmed deer become infected, and then that infection is transmitted across the fence by, you know, presumably a nose-to-nose -nose contact with a farm between a farm deer 
and a wild deer, which is something, you know, we worry about with chronic wasting disease too. You mentioned CWD there, which is something that uh, you have studied fairly extensively, if I'm correct. What's the current state of CWD here in Wisconsin? Well, I was involved with CWD early on, not so much anymore, just to be clear, but CWD has been increasing slowly in Wisconsin. It's been spreading um, spatially, so more and more of our Wisconsin counties are showing up as CWD positive. Um, There are some... Uh, you know, an odd number of uh, sparks that are well north of the established CWD zones, which would be uh, west of Madison here and then down in the southeastern part of the state. So it's increasing in spatial extent and it's increasing in prevalence and it doesn't appear to be slowing down. Well, Tim, that's, I believe, all of the questions that I have for you here today. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to uh, address, either on CWD or uh, the deer hunting season or deer populations? Yeah, I mean, we our deer population in Wisconsin, culturally, ecologically, is a wonderful, valuable thing. And a lot of our neighbors are going to be out hunting deer. So I would, you know, just hope that they have a safe and productive season. I would say participate with the DNR on their efforts to do CWD uh, surveillance and also pay attention to the regulations that are in place to try and reduce CWD transmission. So in the counties where we have CWD, we don't bait. Um, there are, DNR and several environmental organizations have dumpsters out. And they ask you if you butcher your deer to put the, the leavings and the bones and the skeleton in these dumpsters so that they can become landfilled. What that does is if there are CWD-positive materials in the dumpster, it gets isolated and unable to transmit disease to some other deer. Participate in the DNR surveillance so we know how the disease is spreading. I think that's critical for trying to, to manage it. The advice for COVID now is to just to you know pay attention to um, wearing a mask, wearing gloves when you're handling the deer and butchering it, and try to have as little contact as possible with uh, the lung tissue and the tissues that connect to the lungs. And uh, just real quickly, where can people get their deer tested for CWD? Depends on where you are in the state. So there are some uh, uh, butchers and meat lockers that do that. There are some self the kiosks where you fill out a form and deposit the head, if you go online and search for CWD in the DNR site, you'll quickly find an area that's close to you. Well, Tim, thank you so much for talking with me today. All right, great. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT, Madison's community radio station. Stay with us for the second half of the show. There's a lot more coming up. Artful Encounters heads to a long-running art show. Stu Lovatan as a look back at November 1968. And of course, I'll have all the details about the upcoming week's worth of weather that you can stand to hear in the second half. But first, we'll take a break and check back in with the BBC in London for what's happened in the past half hour around the world. Stay tuned.
The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Thanks for staying with us for the second half of the show. It's been 35 colorful years for the Artful Woman Art Show, hosted by the Wisconsin Women's Network. On today's edition of Artful Encounters, feature contributor Gabrielle Javier Cerulli discusses the history of the project and the current show with coordinator Kathy Lederhaus and this year's art show judge, Helen Klebesettel. It's Gabrielle Javier Cerulli with Artful Encounters. Wisconsin Women's Network promotes the advancement of women and girls in Wisconsin. One event they have every year is the Artful Women Art Show. From their website, it says that Artful Women celebrates 35 years of providing a venue for talented women artists to exhibit their work. The juried art show and sale coordinated by fantastic volunteers benefit the Wisconsin Women's Network. This year's Artful Women show runs from October 30th through December 4th, 2021 in the Skylight Gallery, the surgical waiting room at the University Hospital 600 Highland Avenue. Because the viewing of the show is limited to patients and staff at this time, um, you can see the show virtually from their website. Here uh, is Catherine Lederhaus, the coordinator for the Art for Women show, uh, telling us a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a, a Madison photographer. Um, I've been in a, in a lot of shows throughout throughout the state. Um, and I also volunteer to organize um, exhibits. I have, I have organized exhibits for Madison Art Guild and Wisconsin Visual Artists. And art, since 2015, I've been the primary organizer of Artful Women, which is a show sponsored by the Wisconsin Women's Network currently. It was first launched in 1987. Susan Icorn was generous enough to host it in her home for 15 years. She took down all the art on her walls and hung the artist's work in her home for a weekend. In 2002, the show moved to University Hospitals and has been hosted there in, in November since that time. So um, this year, 2021, can people go see the exhibit or is it all virtual? There's a physical exhibit hanging at the hospital. So if you have an appointment there, you can, at the hospital, you can see the show or if you happen to be a patient there, you can see the physical work. Otherwise, we have a an online exhibit that is posted at the Wisconsin Women's Network website under events. You have to scroll down to the bottom for events, or it is also on the Wisconsin Women's Network Facebook page. There is a link to the show. All right. And what kind of art can people expect to see? This year, it's all two-dimensional art, and it is... There's photography, there's watercolors, there's oil painting, there's, there's a couple of fiber pieces this year. So there's a, a variety of work. Sometimes we also have 3D works 
from some both, both jewelers and people who work in clay. So it's a wide variety of art. And how many entries did you get this year? This year, we only had 32 artists exhibit because several of them said during COVID, they had been only doing personal work. With Wisconsin Women's Network, the work has to be for sale because it is a fundraiser for the network. So the entry fee and a percentage of any sales goes to the, the Women's Network. But 32 artists, that, but that, could they um, enter more than one piece? This year, because we had only 32 artists, they okay. could enter two pieces. Traditionally, if they've won awards in the previous year, they could enter two pieces. Ah. So this year they could enter three pieces. We have had in previous years as many as 70 artists um, wow. exhibiting and from other including from other parts of the state like Milwaukee or Stevens Point or Green Bay area. So, but this year it's mainly local artists. Gotcha. Yeah, so uh, I think the exhibit, if people want to see it virtually, um, you're going to see about a little over 60 pieces, right? Correct. Correct. Awesome. All right. Anything else you want to say about the show, Catherine? It's always... It's always fun to see what's been exhibited. And I always get a lot of compliments about the, about the overall show. Yeah, yeah. So, Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome. This year's judge was local artist and creativity coach, Helen Klebesidel. Hi, Helen. Hi, I'm Helen Klebesidel, and I was honored to be the juror for prizes for this year's Art for Women exhibition. It's a wonderful annual uh, opportunity for women artists in the area to share their work and support the, the Wisconsin Women's Network at the same time. Uh, this year was an extremely difficult time for me because there was so much wonderful art there. And uh, so I spent a fair amount of time going through and looking at the fabulous work and I was able to identify a grand prize winner, a second place and a series of really beautiful um, honorable mentions. And I have to say, I could have given twice as many awards and there still would have been deserving artists there. So if people do get a chance to take a look at the art exhibition, this year, I think it's um, mostly online. Uh, that you, you might wanna look at it online, but it's, it's a beautiful work and uh, I encourage everybody to see it. Thank you so much. Have you been involved with this before in the past? I have, I have both juried the work in the past and I have also exhibited in the exhibition in the past and actually have uh, been a member of the Wisconsin Women's Network periodically when I remember to join up because <laughs> they do such good work working for equity for women in Wisconsin. They're really a wonderful organization and I encourage people to check it out. Excellent. Thank you, Helen. You're welcome. To view the show online, go to www.wiwomensnetwork.org forward slash events, and then scroll down to Art for Women. 
Well, we cracked 50 degrees today for the first time in nearly a week, but that brief warm-up will have to suffice for the heat lovers out there among you, because I see little possibility of anything like that until, uh, well, I'm not quite sure when exactly. We'll warm again briefly this coming weekend, and then again midweek next, but those episodes are looking a little more like 40-ish rather than 50-ish. We appear to be in a sort of transition, or at least modification, of the overall pattern we've been seeing across this part of the continent the last few weeks, at least to judge from how the medium and longer ranges of the computer models are currently looking. If you remember, three or four weeks ago, we had a very blocky pattern in the upper air across the continent, which I remarked on a number of times. That sort of uh, standing wave pattern helped provide the long warm stretch that we had back in October. After that, we transitioned to an increasingly active wavy pattern, which brought regular swings in temperature every five to seven days or so as those waves passed. And that pattern is still very much in evidence if you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening. Indeed, that three-day review of motion in the upper troposphere shows an almost textbook series of sinusoidal troughs and waves marching steadily west to east from the Pacific Ocean right on over to the Atlantic. But what seems to be on the uh, cards uh, going forward is the development of a blocking ridge downstream of us over the western Atlantic in a position that's likely to keep an upper troughing tendency over the area from about the western Great Lakes over towards the east coast. So that'll put us in a cold position overall over the coming period since uh, we'll be under the backside of that upper trough. That's also going to be a fairly dry position in this case because, generally speaking, surface high pressure tends to hold sway in the margin between upper ridging and upper troughing. Indeed, the rightward turning flow that comes off of high pressure is what's responsible for drawing the cold air southward into the trough out ahead of it and rotating the warm air northward up into the upper ridge behind it. Surface high pressure, of course, is not terribly conducive to active weather, so while the coming week or two will retain some of the temperature swings that we've been seeing over the past few weeks, any interesting storms that are likely are that might result are likelier than not to impact areas further east or northeast of us where upper troughing is more prone to reestablish itself as each of these coming waves goes by. Here, we'll just get brief doses of warming, followed by much more enthusiastic and longer-lived cool-offs. So, uh, an early taste of winter coming up ahead, but I'm afraid without any of the interesting parts, basically. Uh, Tonight, high and mid-level clouds will continue to scatter east, and clearer skies eventually will help us to drop, I think, to around 30 or so, possibly the upper 20s on west and northwest winds, which will stay pretty active at 10 to 17 miles per hour. Without those winds, we drop a lot lower. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies early on will quickly cloud over, uh, or nearly over, I would guess, with uh, cumulus and then stratocumulus, which is likely to be pretty persistent, I think, through much of the day, with steep lapse rates up through about six or 7,000 feet. That cloud deck is going to prevent us getting much past the mid-30s, I don't think, as uh, will northwesterly winds up uh, pretty brisk tomorrow, 15 to 25 miles per hour, continuing to draw early season Arctic air down into the region. Clouds will break and uh, winds subside some tomorrow night. That should let us drop towards about 20 or so by Friday morning. That's about as cold as we've gotten so far. 
Friday, we'll see temperatures recover upward uh, towards the upper 30s on backing southwesterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. But I expect returning high clouds that day to hold the temperature probably sub 40 through the day. We'll stay warmer then in the overnight in the low 30s with southerly winds up at 5 to 10 miles per hour and continued uh, high cloud cover. Saturday, the temperatures will reach the low 40s, uh, possibly slightly higher depending upon the cloud cover that day, which I think we'll still see a good deal of. Winds will veer more westerly on Sunday then as the, uh, as the first of a couple of waves deepens low pressure to our east and north. And that low pressure is going to start uh, to a uh, descent in our temperatures as we go into the coming week. We may be held sub-30 for the first time on uh, Monday or Tuesday of next week. At the moment, it's 41 degrees at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 25. Winds are out of the west at uh, 10 miles per hour. Uh, broken overcast up at about 13,000 feet currently over the station, and the barometer's been rising pretty rapidly over the past several hours. It's up at 29.95 inches of mercury. And the time is now 6.46, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We now go back 53 years to November of 1968, a month of protest, racial tension, and great music. Stu Lovatan has all the details on this edition of Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, November 1968. On the 2nd, UW Chancellor Edwin Young assures the Wisconsin Alumni Association Board of Directors that the university, quote, will catch, punish, and separate from the university those who obstruct its function. Young explicitly warns the Students for a Democratic Society, Wisconsin Draft Resistance Union, not to go through with their threatened takeover of another campus building. But he says, quote, if it's confrontation that some of these students want, then they will get it. Three nights later, about 2,000 students stage a boisterous but orderly march up State Street, protesting the day's presidential election and the imminent return of the Dow Chemical Company for more job interviews. Afterward, about 1,300 attend a mass meeting in the Union Theater, and overwhelmingly reject calls from SDS leaders and older Paul Soglin to take over a campus building. And when Dow Chemical returns on the 7th, there are no attempts to disrupt or obstruct. 
But on the 22nd, two U.S. and South African officials, invited to a conference on Southern African problems at the Wisconsin Center, are not allowed to speak after one of the 400 attendees rises and calls for a vote on whether they should be summarily disinvited. With most of the crowd members of the African Student Union, some already shouting their opposition to the speakers, the two officials are soon excused. Eight days earlier, Young had received a memo from Vice Chancellor Robert H. Altwell telling him that President Fred Harvey Harrington, quote, has completely reneged on his promise to provide funds to match the student's contribution to the scholarship fund established earlier this year after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We have yet to prove to ourselves and certainly to the black students that we are committed, Altwell wrote, warning that unless and until such proof is provided, quote, we can expect major political confrontations and even violence. Just before Thanksgiving, students protesting the arrest of a black non-student disrupt the Rathskeller for three days. Then two more days of disruptions around campus by students protesting the lack of immediate action on their six-point plan for racial equity. That's when racial tensions explode at Camp Randall, deepening the woes of a winless football team. On November 20th, Ray Arrington, a black track star and member of the athletic board, meets privately with the board to convey a series of grievances that black football players hold. He tells the board the players feel a lack of rapport with coaches and need academic counseling and are concerned about their status if their eligibility ends before they receive their degrees. One of the grievances is very personal. Coach John Coda's mandate to black players that they not date white women. The black players ignore the directive with impunity, leading to reciprocal resentment from white players and coaches. White players also get most, though not all, of the easy jobs with a trucking company owned by Coda's father-in-law, former Mayor Henry Reynolds. More black players work on the line at Oscar Mayer. The black players are also upset that quarterback Lou Richardson, son of the team's only black coach, was benched in favor of a white player, and they want several assistant coaches fired, or at least reviewed. Two days before Thanksgiving break, 18 black players boycott the team banquet. Four freshmen attend, and four others are excused. This is just a football thing, one boycotter says, not a general protest against the university administration. The next day, white linebacker Ken Kreider, the team's MVP, says racial tension is, quote, definitely part of the reason the Badgers have lost their last 15 games with an 0-19-1 record in the two years since coach Milt Brune was forced out and Coda hired. Another white defensive player, Tom McCauley says, quote, There are guys who should have been kicked off the team, but were not because they are black. They are the ones who discriminated against us. The athletic board chair, Professor Frederick Haberman, says the board takes the concern seriously and promises, quote, honorable, peaceful, and fruitful negotiations in early December. And the month began on such a high note. The university's first black homecoming, two nights of dances and more put on by the Black People's Alliance, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, 
and Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. In other news, Green Bay Packers general manager Vince Lombardi is among the guests on the 18th when the Madison Housing Authority dedicates its 168-unit public housing project for the elderly on West Olin Avenue as the Bjarna Romnus Apartments, named after the city housing director who died in April. Public Facilities Associates, the development firm started in 1967 by David Carley, former Democratic National Committeeman and candidate for lieutenant governor, and his brother Jim, built the $1.4 million three-shoe horseshoe-shaped project. Lombardi is chairman of the Public Facilities Board. Bill Winfield, a member of the Green Lantern Eating Co-op and other organizers of the Mifflin Street Community Co-op, sign a temporary lease for the defunct White Front Grocery at the corner of Mifflin and Bassett Streets and start selling $5 memberships for a proposed grocery co-op there. The founding bylaws declare that the store aims, quote, to embody a belief in community self-determination. Our assets, as people and money, are committed to the struggle by any means necessary. They raise about $1,500 by Christmas break and proceed to start stocking the store with equipment and goods. And it's a terrific month for music, starting with two shows at the Memorial Union Theater. Jazz saxophonist flautist Charles Lloyd, the 1967 Downbeat Jazz Artist of the Year, and his quartet, featuring Keith Jarrett on piano, for two Sunday night shows before small but enthusiastic crowds. A week later, it's 20-year-old mop-top violin phenom Pinkas Zuckerman, showing why he was the 1967 co-winner of the coveted Leventritt Award. And two of the most important groups in rock and pop at the Dane County Coliseum, Simon and Garfunkel on the 2nd, The Doors on the 8th. There's even spoken word culture. Robert Bly, winner of the National Book Award for Poetry and co-founder of the American Writers Against the Vietnam War, reads and discusses his poetry in the Union's Old Madison Room. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s for your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6, a broadcast which is largely put together by volunteers each day. And when I read the credits in a moment, you'll note that I have no reporters to thank this evening, so we need you to come on down to the station and report for this news broadcast. It's a lot of fun, and we provide all the training. You can call us at 256-2001 during daylight hours and speak to the volunteer coordinator. We'd love to have you on. Special thanks this evening to feature contributors Gabrielle Javier Cerulli and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman was the engineer tonight. Nate Weggehaupt is the producer of this newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever, wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query. That'll be followed by This Way Out at 7.30, and we'll turn back into a music station at 8. And tune in tomorrow night at 6 for all of tomorrow's news. Until then, good night.